So did I tell you that uh, we went to see Mamma Mia last night? No, how wonderful. Ah, it was just so good. We had, um, I have a friend in it, um, Rich Trinder, who has been playing Sam Carmichael for a while. And he's, he's coming out in the autumn and we just wanted to go and he treated us to a bottle of champagne. So the experience was heavily infused, but it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's still, I can't even remember when it first started, but it's just just amazing. It's so tight and just fun. Yeah. Really fun. It's such a great show. I oddly have just this morning interviewed Phila Deloitte in in an entirely different context. And I remember, yeah, I remember the first night, the whole thing, because oddly you didn't really know what to expect. It was kind of a real... You know, the idea of Phyllida doing it seems so... Because I'd always associated her with really serious theatre and stuff. And, um, yeah, ABBA and Jukebox Musical. And I do remember the first night at the Prince of Wales and everybody by the end was up on their feet dancing and just adored it. female character, you know, female-led story. You know, that's what's so brilliant about it is the women are awesome. Yeah, you know, and it's unapologetic yeah. in that way. No, she was saying that. I mean, not to me, but I, I was doing some background reading, and she said that about, you know, that the thing she loved about Mamma Mia, though it didn't seem, you know, of a, a a parcel with her work, was that it had just got these three women and three older women. And actually, when it came out, so I'm trying to think when it came out. It's a long time now. It's yeah, been going, yeah. and there just weren't those parts for older women on stage. I mean, it really was kind of radical in that. Yeah. Um, did you dance? Did you do a bit of Oh dancing? my God, yeah. I mean, you know, much to the embarrassment of my kids. But yeah, Joe and I rocked out yeah. solid. But no, it was it was just brilliant and everyone was sort of rocking in the aisles and, and Rich was fantastic. The whole company just I mean, you know, in terms of that self conscious older women thing, all of that is is so present in the story. And there was one point when they were dancing and um uh, brilliant the the three main women I can't remember the name of the pop band that they have but um, at one point they're dancing and one of their moves in, uh, includes pushing up the sort of slightly sagging boobs of the third member and then <laughs> and then in the next move holding up her cheeks to sort of straighten her jawline tighten her jawline again and that was part of the choreography which oh god it made me laugh but, it, but it's that it's that self-conscious um you know, humour around the, the the sort of the the ageing members of, of of their band, and uh, you know, but but just su- such love in it, and and you know the the when she's sort of um, getting her daughter ready, when she's getting so Donna gets Sophie ready for the for the wedding, and there's the I can't remember the name of the song, but it's uh, school bag in hand. I'm no expert. I'm not going to be able to help you. It makes me cry every time. It's just beautiful. And that's, you know, a testament to to the music as well. No, No, they are amazing. Still going strong. Yeah, it's great. So an almost perfect um, introduction to a podcast in which um, we thought we would talk about Christopher Marlowe. So um, let me introduce you to this week's, um, as the actress said to the critic, with uh, me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And me, Nancy Carroll, as the actress. And we, yeah, and you had, so that has been your big project over the last few weeks, that you've been in a Marlowe season in the perfect place. There can't be many places in the world that you get the combination of Mamma Mia and Christopher Marlowe. That is one off opportunity. (laughs) That is why you come to this podcast. It's so, you know, so much what you want. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was, it was really interesting. We, um, it was, uh, 
a sort of brainchild of, of um, a number of people, but the central producer was a chap called Ray Meyer, um, who has developed um, a way of uh, recording sound immersively. So, and this is the first theatrical project. Uh, I think they've done it a number of times with opera and um, music. But this is, in terms of spoken word, what he's wanting to recreate is, you know, using your normal sort of uh, headphone equipment. You you put that on and it's as if you're in the space because he's used over 100 microphones wow. all across his theatre, under a stage, throughout the auditorium, all the actors are mic'd. Um, you know, all around the band, up in the flies of the theatre. So it's an extraordinary, every single, you know, sniff and shuffle is recorded um, and gladly because he just wants it, you know, wants it very intense, immersive. And were there uh, in all, so you did all the plays, you didn't do all the plays, but the, the company did all the plays. Did seven plays. Seven plays from Hero and Leander to... No, we no, did. What did um, you do? Oh, that's a that's a poem, actually. Gosh. Yeah, we did. Although they did do poems as well. Actually, right. they were recording poems on Sunday, so that may well have been included. We did. Uh, we started with a Dido, Queen of Carthage, um, and then there was Edward, Tamburlaine One, Tamburlaine Two, Edward the Second, rather, um, the Jew of Malta, Doctor Faustus. How many is that? A flame, flames of Paris, something uh, of Paris. There's a Paris. The massacre of Paris. Massacre of Paris. Yeah, yeah. I was in that. <laughs> well, I was completely forgotten. It's rubbish. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was quite. It was quite a sort of marathon. Yeah, and in Canterbury, which was where he yeah. was born. Yeah. And, um, which actually has very little. It has the Marlowe Theatre. Were you in the Marlowe Theatre? Or? No, we used the studio space for rehearsal at various points, but we were in a new theatre space called the Malt House, which was built um, on the grounds of the King's School uh, just before lockdown. Right. So we were the first people to use it. And it's the most extraordinary space. Absolutely beautiful. Um, I mean, has been built for professional purposes, but on the side of the school, so the school have, you know, usage of it as well. I mean, you know, how amazing is that? But it was just absolutely beautiful and sort of it reminded me of the swan, actually, um, and very sort of wooden, so you get that incredible warmth um, and timbre, and it, it was incredibly well equipped. And we had the 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 band on stage as well, who had a, quite a lot of Elizabethan instruments, um, and yeah, they were just awesome. And and use the instruments to create a lot of the sort of sounds that you would normally, you know, for any if anybody was hit or uh, you know anything thrown or anything like that, that we, we'd sort of curate that with with actual music it was I mean it was just it was an extraordinary experience because we were holding the scripts but ultimately I think a lot of his work you you can't really do on the hoof you have to have an understanding of it because of the nature of the language it, and you know I'll probably sort of go to hell for this but I I don't think it has I think he lacks some of the poetry of Shakespeare and some of the the natural rhythm and the and the sort of cues and uh, equipment that Shakespeare gives his players. Right. I know that's, that's probably blasphemous given that we're dedicating the entire podcast <laughs> to him. <laughs> well, no, but we're dedicating the podcast to him because I, I think he he does hold such an interesting sort of position in um, English drama. I mean, he's... I, I did him at um, university and um, I found my notes, and which are very neat. I'm quite proud <laughs> of my university notes, Amala. <laughs> 
And I obviously liked him more at university than I think I've gone on to like him in my life. Because I think in terms of, you know, what I've seen in the theatre and what... um, I've seen very little Marlowe. And my main memory of Marlowe, in fact, is um, uh, he dies in um, 1593, I think, yeah. at the age of 29. So there's not much of, you know, it's a really short career. Yeah. Um, and there's that weird, well, we'll talk a bit about his life in a moment, but there's that weird rumour that he didn't die, he became Shakespeare, which I, I think we will talk about. Which yeah. I But my, my main memory of him, apart from university, is that bit in, do you remember in Shakespeare in Love? Yeah. Where Rupert Everett, who's uncredited, bizarrely, uh, plays him. And he he and Shakespeare are discussing um, Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter, oh, which yes. Shakespeare hasn't written. Yeah. And it's Marlowe who comes up with the name of Ethel as <laughs> Romeo's love interest, yeah. which is just sort of, a, you know, kind of brilliant, mad, Stoffardian yeah. moment because it, it's written by Stoffard. And, you know, it's just such a kind of... Um, that kind of sums up Marlowe, this yes. kind of forgotten but rather interesting figure. Yes, yes. Um, but did it um, did it change your view of him performing him? Do you feel? Yeah, definitely. I think you know you uh, you. I think when you have a limited amount of time, and that ultimately you are performing, you know your your adrenaline and deadline of performance focuses the brain very quickly, and you're like, well, I can't mine this language as much as I'd like to, what can I take from it? And I think, you know, what was interesting about him is that he was obviously a great lover of words and a great lover of stories. I think there there seems to be, and, you know, again, this is very sort of with a very, having had a very brief encounter with him, that this sort of whack-a-mole nature to um, trying to be so inclusive giving something you know some something for everybody you know so you go particularly the Jew of Malta which I think is such a sort of contentious piece particularly in light of you know how you know the nature of anti-semitism the conversations around it at the moment there's a you know quite rightly enormous sensitivity and um and so those discussions were had in our rehearsal room, particularly since Adrian Schiller was playing um, Barabbas uh, or Barabbas, depending on how you want to pronounce it. The, um, the and having just played um, in the Merchant of Venice at the Sam Wanamaker at the Globe, you know, and so for him there was an extraordinary uh, chance to compare the two, yeah. um, and what he feels about the Jew of Malta particularly. Um, you know, despite the fact that you get these extraordinary scenes where uh, Barabbas seems incredibly um, intentionally cruel, you then get a scene right up against it where he's very, very funny and actually very He's definitely a comic figure, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, And you sort of, and you have to swing between the two that, that, um, you know, that Shylock doesn't have at all and that, you know, The Merchant of Venice doesn't have in that way. It's much more of a well-formed story, whereas Marlowe seems to swing from one dramatic yeah. um, conversation to another. And uh, and actually what, what's interesting about the, about the Jew of Malta is this, um, you know, extraordinary wit, you know, and there are scenes that are incredibly funny. I mean, he is very, very funny. 
But also you come away thinking he didn't really like anybody because yeah, yeah. he's cruel about everybody, the Christians and the, um, you know, and the, and the Jewish uh, community and, um, you know, there's the, the prostitute and the, you know, the bankers and, the, you know, they're all, they're all out for their own gain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, so I, I read them both. In fact, to go and see um, Adrian Schiller in, right. uh, uh, in The Merchant of Venice. Um, I thought I would just look at examples of kind of anti-Semitism in drama. Yeah. And um, I, I was, uh, yeah, knocked sideways really by how um, how broad a comedy Jew of Malta is. Yeah, yeah. And how, um, yeah, how he does hate absolutely everybody. I mean, it's anti-everything. I mean, yes, it, yes. it is extraordinary. And I think that's the interesting thing about um, Marlowe theatrically because he had this uh, in many ways the reason that people are always inclined to think that Marlowe might be Shakespeare or Shakespeare is Marlowe yeah. and vice versa is that Marlowe is the educated one so he he goes to King's School he goes to I think it's Corpus Christi in Cambridge he learns Latin there's all this stuff about perhaps he was a spy and that, and that therefore there are some very odd sort of incidents in his life all along where things happen and then he seems not to get in trouble for them as if perhaps he was a spy yeah, yeah. and was being protected by Walsingham or maybe not being protected by Walsingham um, under Elizabeth the first and so there's all that kind of colour in yeah, his life yeah. but there's also all that education which you know again Shakespeare is you know Shakespeare the grammar school boy and blah de blah but when he starts to write for the theatre what is so fascinating about Marlowe is that he writes really as an entertainer I mean he, he's you know the the, the sort of I mean, this is what I learned when I studied him, that the sort of showmanship of it. So they're really the broadness of the plays, the fact that um, Jew of Malta is a, a kind of knockabout comedy, that Tamburlaine has got kind of huge comic scenes as well as kind of great passages of language, uh, an incredible cruelty and... Um, it ricocheting between um, farce and um, and and tragedy, really. Yeah, yeah. Edward II, you know, it's got kind of graphic violence in it, and he's very much inventing a popular form. He's actually he is out there saying, "I am going to invent this, and everybody's going to enjoy it, and the groundlings are going to enjoy it, and um, I'm making theatre for." the people i think yeah. so that, that that you and you get that much stronger sense in him yeah than in the supposedly less educated shakespeare even in shakespeare's early um plays yeah i mean there was the first one we did i did uh dido queen of carthage and that's um i found that to be an incredibly moving love story actually and whether you know I don't know where he would have taken that from. I think there was, we'd talk about uh, the Aeneid. Maybe? In the Aeneid, yeah. yeah so yeah. that li that is lifted from his sort of, yeah, his but Latin it, education. The, the passages that Dido has where she talks about, you know, um, it's just ripping her heart out at the end, being having been abandoned, but also the, 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 um, uh, the manipulation with which he attempts to get Aeneas to stay. I thought that all of that was incredibly beautiful, really beautiful and incredibly moving. And actually there were funny moments even within that tragedy. Like, you know, I go, you know, you have to leave. I can't look at you, leave. And then there's a moment where she literally says to the audience, has he gone? 
you know, and it, and it's, but it's sort of heartbreaking and it's yeah. a sort of, it's the late night phone call that you shouldn't be making to say, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's sort of proper girl meets boy heartache in that way. And yet these people are born of the gods. Yeah. And all of that, you know, the fact that, you know, you Elizabethan theatre creates this genre in which you can have the gods alongside um you know, normal normal humans having conversations and talking about manipulating situations and all the rest of it. It's sort of, it, it's an extraordinary time and, 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 but actually really interesting in terms of what, what people were into at that, at that time in terms of Greek tragedy and all the different influences and, um, and the, the planets and the stars and influence and destiny and all that. And, and so it throws up you know, really fantastic stuff. And I think in some ways, because Marlowe is slightly rawer than Shakespeare in some... you and, and quite a lot of his stuff is based on what I discovered were called the memorial plays because there's very little of, of Marlowe's original writing exists. Right. And so what we have are what was written down after performances by people who were either there or performed it. Yeah. And so there's... Quite a lot of his stuff is sort of uh, piecemeal in that way. It's put together. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it but it means that it, it, you know it's in it's that perhaps certain bits are. I want a better word than clunkier, but you sort of there is a clunky nature yeah. to the way that one scene leads to another. Yeah, and that's quite interesting about yeah because it's hard to judge him yeah. because of that because yeah, yeah. you know if if the Shakespeare failures are sort of contentious, then the Marlowe ones are even more so, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's also and also and I wonder I don't know this because I'm not a uh, Marlowe scholar, but the 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 other problem with them is they're all so long. Yeah. I mean, Peter Hall chose to open the Olivier with Tamburlaine, starring Albert Finney, obviously to assert Marlowe's significance in English drama. And, yeah. you know, if you're opening the National Theatre, then you need um, a play by Marlowe in it. And so the logic of it was perfect, I think. Yeah. And he he decided to do the whole of Tamburlaine. Yeah. So, do the, so previously, the last time it had been done before Finney did it at the opening of the National Theatre, it, it was Donald Wolfett. And oh. Donald Wolfett, presumably being kind of, you know, very much the actor-manager, had slashed both halves of Tamburlaine down to about two hours. Yeah. And um, Hall decided to do the full four hours. And I was... Um, th there's a brilliant um, description of... There's lots and lots of funny stories about that Tamerlane because it took because of all the strikes that were going on in the building of the National Theatre. There's a um, Gordon Granger who was in it said that his wife was pregnant on the first day of rehearsal and given birth by the last day of rehearsal. I mean, wow. you had this incredible yeah. sort of uh, birthing period. Yeah. Um, but what was also extraordinary about it was that Hall in his diaries keeps saying, oh, my God, it's awful. It's just awful. It's lying flat as a pancake. I can't bear it. And then they start to, because of the strikes, they start to rehearse outside on the terrace of the National Theatre and interact with the public because the public are just walking by and there's this kind of great cast of actors, which also includes people like Dennis Quilly. And they they start to play to an audience oh, wow. and 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 um hall records how the whole thing came to life yeah and i again i think that's and so then they took those lessons back into the yeah. four-hour drama 
Um, but I think that's really interesting that in front of an audience at some level, yes. it starts to work. Yes. Did you, I mean, did you have an audience in? We did. I mean, it was, it was minimal, um, you know, but they did come and they were lovely and and I you know ultimately it was a it was with a live audience but being recorded to then stream so um but I think that the nature of things coming to life with an audience is such a it's always that last piece of the puzzle and and really the most important piece and and audiences tell you so much in that way and Peter Hall was an extraordinary lover of of Greek theatre it always reminds me of this Years and years ago, Joe was doing a film in Bulgaria and there's this extraordinary place, uh, which is a UNESCO site called Plovdiv. And there was a there's a, a, a massive amphitheatre there that was discovered in some sort of freak landslide in 1972, so much so that they'd already built some massive underpass um, motorway underneath it, which sort of disappears, you know, into the distance as you come out of the amphitheatre. And we happened to turn up in this place on the night that they were doing this uh, performance, which I think roughly translated as This is Bulgaria. And, they, <laughs> and we did this and we sat with every single member of the community. It must have been for miles. And people had come literally from the farms on, you know, with a, on their horse and cart and to people turning up, you know, with their drivers and all their glad rags. I mean, everybody was there. And it was their story. And there was this proprietorial nature to the way that the audience heckled and shouted and and responded to this piece and you think well actually that's what theatre should be it should sit in the centre of a community and that they the audience have rights and that they they inform and and it was just such an extraordinary experience and there was this very much because I think at one point in history the, the Bulgarians were overrun by the Turks and so the the Bulgarian soldier was there and um in his, uh, you know, his, his full sort of leather armor, you know, regalia, and the Turk comes on, and everybody in the audience is like, "Oh God, <laughs> you know, bloody Turks!" And then he stood up, you know, and there was a sort of, no, "I will not die. Yeah, I will carry yeah, on, yeah. and it will be marvelous." And and the whole audience like, "Yes, Bulgaria, <laughs> Bulgaria wins!" And it, but it was this, yeah. and I think that was the nature of proper drama yeah. in, in, in and, amphitheatres and, 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 and that's what it should be and I think yeah. Marlowe was writing for audiences yeah. that wanted no and now we need comedy yes. and now oh god he's died oh blood everywhere yeah. and it was that it's that sort of yes. drama that you sort of pinball from one extreme emotion to another and, and so it it serves brilliantly serves the audience yeah and it taste. is and it is I mean it is exactly that that makes it um, I think so tricky to do today because it's really hard to recreate that it's really hard to recreate that with as you say sort of slightly clunky bits of um business uh in the plays yeah and his language is patchy i mean i i notice in my in my marlowe text you know i've i've lined all these bits and bobs to learn and 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 um if for my exams and you know sometimes the language is absolutely sensational and rich and um there's no you know there, there is no doubt that Marlowe invented the blank verse yeah. format that Shakespeare then used there are bits of Marlowe there's a speech for um 
uh, Barabbas, I think, in um, Jew of Malta, which almost exactly um, Shakespeare uses uh, when he's got um, night coming down in Macbeth um, about, you know, darkness thickens and the birds and all the rest of right. it. It's all taken from Marlowe. Um, and you can say, I mean, you know, you can say that Shakespeare... Um, you know, nicked Marlowe, you know, he, Antony and Cleopatra is Dido. Yeah, um, oh yeah, of uh, Malta has elements of, of Macbeth and, you know, the the tyrant sort of going madder and madder, or maybe Tamburlaine is like that. And so you can see the sort of patterns that, that Shakespeare built on, but he did build on them. I find it hard to believe that a man who, you know, perhaps died and then went off and reinvented himself. I can't really see that he would have done quite... It does look like one dramatist yeah, yeah. building on the shoulders of another. And yet he... So with Marlowe, it is so interesting that he's so significant. You know, yeah, Dr very. Faustus... Which is still brilliant. I mean, there isn't yeah. a huge amount that's wrong with Faustus. It is still a great play. And I think it must be one of the most commonly done out of his... Do you think, or is that a bit rich? Me no, I think it is. I uh, think it talking. is, but it's still not often done. I was, I, I've seen a lot of really bad student productions of Faustus. Right. right? Um, I was trying to think if I'd ever seen um, one um, that I'd really loved in the theatre, and yeah. I don't think I have. But uh, it is. I mean, the people who were doing it loved it. He had Dominic West playing Faustus, yeah, and Tallulah, Tallulah Riley um, reading uh, Mephistopheles, and and you know. It, Dominic's brilliant at that sort of language and, and he really brought it to life and I think all of them had a real sense coming away out of out of our, the seven. For me, I think it was Dido, but a lot of them had that extraordinary experience with um, with Edward II and with Dr Faustus that they hadn't realised quite how brilliant the plays yeah. were. Edward II's got that brilliant moment in it where, well, it's got lots of brilliant things in it, um, Edward II, which actually is the one I think I know best. But... Um, it's got that wonderful moment about uh, something something like, why do you prefer him above all the world? And, yeah. and Edward II says, because he loves me over all the world. I mean, it's just kind of incredible bit of simple writing yeah. with, with, with massive force in it. But yeah. I would have liked to see Dominic West and uh, 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 as a uh, because that feels like kind of... Yeah. Um, you know, I can imagine that he would he would get the kind of richness of that character. I get a sense as well from the very little I know about Marlowe that he was a hedonist. You know, the, the, there was a bit of information about, you know, the question mark over whether or not he was employed by the government as a spy. And that certainly his bills when he was, it was at Cambridge he was at. He was at Cambridge, And yeah. that his, um, his food and drink bills sort of went up you know, but tenfold during this sort of projected period of time of employment and that he was really going for it and partying hard and that, that perhaps if we if we believe that he was stabbed in the eye in the back streets of Deptford for whatever reason, over an unpaid bill or... Yeah, the some, reckoning. Yeah, yeah some uh, conversation that went wrong, um, that it was, it was out of a sort of... Um, you know, late night bad behaviour that that possibly misunderstood and he was misrepresented in that moment, yeah. but he but that he partied hard. Yeah. And so Faustus, you know, is there a bit of autobiography in that? You know, I don't know, but it was, it is. It, it, he's such an interesting character, um, and I, and to have ch achieved all of that by the age of twenty nine. 
is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Actually, the other the other Faustus, just uh, as we come to the end, the other Faustus I would have cut my arm off to see almost is that Richard Burton did it with Liz Taylor as uh, the face that launched a thousand ships. Um, in Oxford, the, 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 in the very early days of the Playhouse, I mean, you know, long before um, yeah. I was there, or, or, or um, they 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 did have a production. And then when you walked into the Oxford Playhouse in the old days, there used to be a big picture of Burton and Taylor in Faustus, which oh, you really? just always thought, oh wow. Was she she so she wasn't Mephistopheles? No, she? she played Helen. I mean, very oh, small, course, but Helen, yeah. He was, I, I think I'd like to see more. I think that's yeah. that, I think that's my kind of bottom line for this. You doing this project has made me feel that we undervalue Marlowe possibly, and that we really ought to see more of him. But you your productions we're going to be able to hear eventually yes eventually i think we're very much in post-production now but i think eventually they will be streamed and available and yeah i mean i i i will have more information and we'll be able to give more information well we'll return to that subject in another podcast having succeeded in putting both abba and a 16th century playwright into one conversation that now is the moment to call it a halt and we'll come back on that um, next week we're going to um, have uh, Patrick Marber as our guest on the podcast to talk about Closer, which is being revived at the Lyric Hammersmith. Um, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, we've managed to record that episode before we recorded this one. So that has been counted as episode eight and this technically has been counted as episode nine. But if you can hold in your heads the idea that they're the other way around then that will be very I'd be most grateful um, and keep you, everybody on their toes yes we just wanted to confuse yeah. everybody <laughs> and um, I really um, having uh, had already had the conversation with Patrick I do commend it to you and I hope you will listen to us next week when we once again return as the actress said to the critic and so it's goodbye from me the critic Sarah Crompton and goodbye from me the actress Nancy Carroll